Sure, you can go to church, but you'll have to leave your brain at the door. Christians are gullible. It's just a bunch of superstitious nonsense. You might as well believe in fairy tales. You can't expect people to believe that kind of thing anymore. Haven't we moved beyond that as a society? You've lost your mind. Well, I don't know if you've ever heard anything like that, or if you've not actually heard it, perhaps you've suspected that people were thinking about you. And if that's the case, take heart. Uh, you're not the first person that that's happened to. And in fact, our chapter today proves us that actually the opposite is true. It would be really helpful if you kept your Bibles open at Acts chapter 26. And as we begin to uh, look down at verse 24, it says this. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defence. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. What I've been saying is true and reasonable. In our passage this morning, Paul is defending himself for the fifth time in as many chapters. In, verse, in chapter 22, it was before a crowd in Jerusalem. Then in chapter 23, Paul was defending himself before the Sanhedrin. In chapter 24, uh, it was the, the governor of Felix that Paul was speaking to. Then in chapter 25, it was the new governor, Festus, two years later. And today, in chapter 26, Paul is defending himself before King Agrippa. And not only is it his fifth defense of himself in as many chapters, we also get the third account of Paul's conversion in the book of Acts. We saw it as it happened in chapter 9. Uh, then we had an account of it from Paul in chapter 22. And now we get another account of it from Paul in chapter 26. Why all this repetition? I felt a little bit bad getting Zingy to read the whole chapter for us. Why do we need to hear it all again? Can't we just please move on with the action? Uh, aren't, we, aren't we sick of all these courtroom dramas? Well, never fear, we're going to hit the high seas with Paul next week. It's going to be very exciting. But it's right that we stop here in chapter 26 first. Because chapter 26 isn't here because Luke had some kind of word count that he needed to meet and was trying to fill up his quota. No, chapter 26 is here for a reason. It has something to say to us. One thing it does is that it gives us confidence that the gospel is reasonable and that it's true. We've seen that Paul claims that that's the case in verse 25, and it's not just hot air from Paul, he's already shown it to be true. Let's have a look at how he does that. Perhaps you remember from last week that Paul, having been a prisoner, uh, been held prisoner by Governor Felix for two years, gave his defence before the new governor, Festus. And Festus found nothing to charge Paul with. In fact, I'm not even sure he really understood the charges that the Jewish leaders brought against him. Have a look back at chapter 25 and verse 18. Festus says, When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus, whom Paul claimed was alive. Festus found nothing to charge Paul with, but during his defence, Paul had appealed to his right as a Roman citizen to be brought before Caesar and tried before him. 
Uh, as a result of that, Festus was happy to send Paul off to Rome, but he didn't really want to do it without there actually being any charges uh, to send along with him. Fortunately for Festus, though, King Agrippa was coming to pay him a visit. And the reason that that was good news for him was that unlike Festus, King Agrippa understood the Jewish religion. And so perhaps he would be able to understand what these charges were that were being brought against Paul. King Agrippa was the king of Israel. He was the great grandson of King Herod of nativity story fame. And uh, he was Jewish, but he was really a puppet king with the strings being pulled by Rome. So Festus decided that it was time for Paul to defend himself again, to defend himself before King Agrippa. And not just him, but quite a formidable room full of people. Glance back at chapter 25 and verse 23. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Paul was glad to be speaking before King Agrippa. Why was that? Have a look down at verse 2. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defence against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are acquainted with the Jewish customs and controversies. The fact that Paul is addressing someone who is familiar with the Jewish religion means that he speaks very differently than he did uh, one chapter earlier when he was defending himself before Festus. In fact, I think there's a sense in which during uh, that chapter he was defending himself, whereas now as he stands before King Agrippa, he is really defending the gospel. It's worth noting that Paul doesn't actually mention uh, the word gospel in our passage, but that's really what's at stake here. He's talking about Jesus' death and resurrection, which are right at the heart of the gospel message. In verses 4 to 8, Paul shows that the gospel is perfectly reasonable in the light of the Old Testament. And who better than him to be able to testify about it? Verse 5, uh, he was a member of the strictest sect of Judaism. He was a Pharisee. He'd studied the Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, cover to cover, and claims uh, that what he's speaking of now, the death and resurrection of Jesus, is just what was promised to God's, old, to God's people in the Old Testament, verse 6. Verse 7, it's what the 12 tribes of Israel had been waiting for and hoping would be fulfilled. How reasonable that it should happen when it's what they'd been waiting for, when it's what they'd been promised, when it's what God had promised to them. Later in the chapter, in verse 22, Paul says, I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and, the, as, and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. He says that this is just what the Old Testament said would happen all along. And we've actually already seen this in Acts. All the way back in chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, Peter, when he was giving his speech, quoted Psalm 16, in which David writes, You will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. And Peter says, Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. This wasn't a novel idea 
that was that was cooked up by the early Christians. No, it was perfectly in keeping with what God's people in the Old Testament had been told would happen. No wonder Paul says in verse 8, why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? It's entirely uh, reasonable, given what Agrippa knew of the Old Testament, to think that the Messiah might have come and suffered and died and risen again. I wonder if we're convinced of the reasonableness of the gospel. Paul was, uh, even when shouted down by a governor in a, in a room full of high-ranking people. I guess what gave him that confidence was not just that he knew it was reasonable, but that he also knew that it was true. He knew that it was true because he had seen the risen Lord Jesus with his own eyes. Going on in verses 9 to 18, uh, Paul describes his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Paul knew that the gospel was reasonable because he knew the Jewish scriptures. He knew that the appearance, suffering, death and resurrection of the Messiah could reasonably be expected to have happened because God had been promising his Old Testament people that it would happen. He knew that it was true because he'd met Jesus himself after his resurrection. Paul can say, I know it's true, I know Jesus is alive, because I saw him alive after he died. It doesn't get much more logical than that. But again, what about us? Are we convinced that the gospel is true and reasonable? Many would have us believe that the opposite is true, that it's untrue and unreasonable, that it's a fairy tale, that trying to convince people, to persuade people that the gospel is true, is right up there with trying to persuade people that Little Red Riding Hood is our second cousin. But that's not the case. The gospel is reasonable. Even if we're not talking to a first century Jewish king who knew the Old Testament, even if we're talking to a 21st century scientist, the gospel is still reasonable. It's reasonable to think that if there is a God, if the God of the Bible exists, and it's not unreasonable to think that he does, we certainly can't prove that he doesn't, then having created the world, he could break into it and make things happen that don't usually happen. And beyond being reasonable, it's also true. We have Paul's testimony that he met Jesus after his resurrection. And beyond his testimony, we have the whole of the New Testament that testifies to the truth of the gospel. I guess the uh, natural response to that might be for someone to ask how we know that the New Testament is true and that we can trust what it says. A fair question, but again, there are very good reasons to believe uh, that it is, that the New Testament is reliable and true. Uh, we don't have time to go into those reasons this morning, but it's worth familiarising yourself uh, with some of them. Uh, uh, read some books, talk to some people. I've been reading a book called Can We Trust the Gospels uh, by Peter Williams, which would be a good place to start if you're interested in doing that. It would be good to familiarise yourself with some of those arguments in order, to be say, in order to be able to say all the more confidently what I am talking about when I talk about the gospel is true and reasonable. Perhaps even if we think it's true, 
we're in danger of slipping into thinking that it's unreasonable to expect that anyone else should change their mind to think that it's true like we do. But that's certainly not what Paul thought. And it shouldn't stop us from speaking about the gospel uh, because the gospel is not only true and reasonable. There's a lot, isn't there, that's both true and reasonable. It's reasonable to believe, and it also happens to be true, that the forecast for the weather in Hobart, Tasmania for today was 14 degrees and partly cloudy. But the fact that it's true and reasonable doesn't mean that it has any impact on my life whatsoever. Not so with the gospel though. It's not just true and reasonable. No, the true and reasonable gospel leads to transformation. It's what happened to Paul when he came to believe the good news of the gospel. And it's what he hopes will happen to others when they hear the news of the gospel from him. The gospel really led to an extraordinary transformation in Paul. Look back at Paul's description of himself in verses 9 to 11. He opposed the name of Jesus. He put Christians in prison and voted for their deaths. He tried to force them to blaspheme and was so obsessed with persecuting Christians that he even hunted them down in foreign cities. He was the number one opponent of the gospel. But then he was transformed. He goes on to explain how he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He puts his trust in him and was commissioned by him. And look at the transformation. Compare verses 9 to 11 with verses 19 and 20. They say this. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, and then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their good deeds. Paul had been completely transformed. He'd gone from being the number one opponent of the gospel to being its number one ambassador. And he was unashamed of wanting other people to be transformed by the gospel also. We see this again after Festus interrupts Paul uh, to call him insane. And Paul claims that what he's been saying is true and reasonable. Have a look down from verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? It seems as if he's expecting the answer no to that question. And I suspect that those looking on would have expected a no as well. It's certainly the answer one might expect today, isn't it? Oh no, Agrippa, you, you have your truth, I have my truth, each to their own. Whatever they expected, the answer, I don't think it was the answer that Paul boldly gave in response. I suspect it would have raised a few eyebrows. Have a look down at verse 29. Short time all along, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. What an answer. The gospel is reasonable, but Paul wasn't trying to show off his intellect. The gospel is true, but Paul wasn't trying to vindicate himself. Paul knew that the true and reasonable gospel leads to transformation. 
And he wanted all those who heard him to know the transformative power of the gospel for themselves. If we're followers of Jesus, then we too have been transformed by the gospel. Jesus commissioned Paul and Paul shared the gospel with others. Uh, they shared the gospel with others in turn and so on and so forth until one day someone shared the gospel with us. And it had the same effect on us as it had on those with whom Paul shared it, who accepted it. From halfway through verse 17, this is Jesus speaking. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. What an extraordinary portrait of a Christian. If we've heard and accepted the gospel, if we've put our trust in Jesus, we've been brought from death to life, been given a new purpose and hope, received forgiveness, become followers of Jesus, been filled with his spirit. In short, we've been transformed. And having been transformed, we should want others to be transformed also. Paul was confident of the reasonableness and truth of the gospel, and confident in that he spoke in the situation he found himself in, even though it was a courtroom in front of a king, with the purpose of transforming those who heard him. Being likewise confident of the truth and reasonableness of the gospel, where will we find ourselves this week? And how, in those situations, can we speak in defence of the gospel in a, in a way that might lead others to being transformed by it as we have been? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the extraordinary gift of the gospel. Thank you that it stands up intellectually. Thank you that it is true and reasonable. But thank you that beyond that, it is transformative as well. Thank you that we have been transformed by hearing and believing it. Help us to live in light of that transformation and help us to desire to see that transformation in others also. Give us a great confidence in the truth and reasonableness of the gospel. And being confident of that, help us to speak boldly and unapologetically so that others might believe the gospel and be transformed by it also. Amen.